Uh, welcome um, to today's show. My name is Glenn Deason, and with me is uh, Alexander McCurris. And the guest of today is the renowned and insightful economist, uh, Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Good to be so, with you. So, uh, yeah, we, we will try today to discuss some of this U.S. conflict with both China and Russia as the world shifts towards uh, from unipolarity to multipolarity. And as many of the decisions uh, taken in the 1990s, from yeah, the U.S. security strategy based on global primacy to uh, yeah, the European security architecture that left Russia out, were to a large extent based on unipolarity with one central power. So as we're now shifting to multipolarity, uh, there's a failure, I guess, to adjust to this reality. So we're seeing huge uh, security c- conflicts, economic financial crash, of course, a failure to address environmental degradation, which is one of your passions. Uh, but I thought we could start first with the development of Europe after the Cold War ended, because as an economist, uh, also representing the US government, you had a key role in advising many uh, governments, also Eastern European economies, to transition from communism to capitalism. So this is now an important part of world history that shaped also Europe. So uh, it's also a great case study when economics meet politics, I guess. So I just wanted to uh, know if you could share some of your experiences uh, from this time. Of, of, co- of course. I'm going to shift out of the bright sunshine. Uh, so uh, I hope uh, there we go. Uh, hold on. Uh, yeah, basically, let me be clear. Uh, I, uh, I never represented the U.S. government then or now. I've always uh, acted as an academic. Uh, I've always uh, volunteered my time. I've never been for hire, uh, and I've uh, never operated for uh, the uh, U.S. government or the IMF or others that were claimed. I, I am a, an academic uh, and a uh, an advisor on a volunteer basis. So just Sorry. to be clear about that, yes. Um, you know, I believed uh, in President Gorbachev's vision of uh, a common European home that would stretch from Rotterdam uh, actually to Vladivostok, as as he put it. Uh, I think that was the right vision then. I continue to believe in uh, open global cooperation, of course, uh, including China, including Africa, including Latin America. So all of my economic advice has been based on the idea of peaceful cooperation and uh, an open uh, an open world that gives space for countries uh, either to overcome historical burdens that they faced, uh, to make up for lost time, to uh, uh, recover from financial crises, and so on. In 1989, I became advisor to the Polish government and the Solidarity Movement uh, as that country was uh, transitioning. Uh, from the Soviet system to uh, a market and democratic system. And I advised on how Poland could reconnect with Europe. And indeed, the the slogan of uh, the Polish Solidarity Movement was the return to Europe. Uh, so I recommended how to make the currency convertible, how to create stability, how to reduce the debt burdens that were inherited from the Soviet period and so forth. It was quite successful. Uh, And on that basis, uh, President Gorbachev asked me to work with his economic team, uh, led by uh, uh, Gregory Yavlinsky at the time. Uh, And uh, I tried to help them 
Uh, and then uh, after the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, President Yeltsin uh, asked me to work with uh, Yegor Gaidar, his economic uh, advisor uh, and acting prime minister, uh, in fact, to help. Now, the big point that I would make is that when I advised Poland, I made several recommendations to help Poland overcome a deep financial crisis, uh, cancel Poland's debts, create a special fund to stabilize the currency and so forth. These proved to be, uh, first, they were adopted by the White House very quickly, my ideas, sometimes within a few hours. Second, they proved to be quite successful in stabilizing uh, a collapsed economy. But when I made the same recommendations for Gorbachev's reforms, they were turned down completely uh, without uh, uh, any any iota of support. The White House said, hell no, we're not supporting the Soviet Union. And then when I made similar recommendations on how to stabilize uh, the Russian situation in early 1992, which was also very, very difficult financially, a complete flat rejection. And I said to senior U.S. officials, but it worked in Poland. They told me it doesn't matter if it worked in Poland. This is different. Basically, the U.S. was already on the course of unipolarity, which is not my uh, a cup of tea at all. Uh, they said, why should we help these guys? They're our enemies. And they drew a line, first pushing the U.S.-led alliance to the eastern border of Poland, and that was going to be their new expanded uh, range, and that's why they supported Poland. I thought they were supporting Poland out of the idea that we're going to uh, create a, a better integrated world. But uh, they drew the line, basically, at wherever NATO could go. So if uh, NATO went east, okay, support that country. But they were making new barriers, not a common European home. I didn't get it at the beginning because, you know, I was very much uh, in favor of both uh, Gorbachev's and Yeltsin's vision. Yeltsin put it a different way. He said, we just want to be normal. We want to be normal. <laughs> we don't want to be on the outskirts. We just want to be normal. And I completely agree with that approach. And it works economically, but you have to have a geopolitical mindset to it. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. mindset was, no, that still is the enemy on the other side. And we're going to expand NATO. We're going to create a larger U.S. imperium. Uh, we're going to help those on our side, not those on the other side. And then, of course, uh, to, to jump ahead to the current uh, moment, <laughs> to my huge dismay, of course, this has become exactly the same game plan vis-a-vis -vis China. And this is also very strange for me because I've been going to China for 40 years, uh, very frequently for the last 30 years. I have many former students who are senior officials, many colleagues, many friends. Uh, I never for one moment view China as an enemy or anything like an enemy. And yet the U.S. is making it into an enemy by a daily drumbeat uh, that China is the great threat to the world. And again, it's the same mentality. Uh, if you believe 
that the key is you have to be number one, then you look at any other success story as a threat. If you believe in an open cooperative world, then you celebrate the success of others. I'm in, I'm in the latter camp, but that's not the dominant foreign policy of the United States. Professor Sachs, I find this so bewildering and difficult to understand from an American point of view, because the United States in the 1990s, in the 2000s, today still is at the very center of the economic system. I mean, it is the, it's still you know, the, the pivotal country. I would have thought that the United States benefits most from having open economic trade relations with countries like Russia, China, wherever. And in fact, it's in its interests to have them as friends. So I mean, has this never been understood or grasped in the United States? Or you know, am I seeing something completely wrong? I mean, it's dividing the world into blocks in this way, which is what is happening, coming about, is contrary to US interests. It's actually accelerating the end of US primacy. Well, you know, the, the question is, what, what are interests here? Yeah. Uh, if you think uh, uh, like we do uh, as, as uh, uh, economists, uh, you say interests are better well-being, uh, higher living standards, uh, mutual gains from trade. That's how I think. So I agree with you that none of what the U.S. is doing is in the U.S. interest. If you think of U.S. interest uh, as a realist strategist, or maybe not even a realist strategist, I'd say a, a neoconservative uh, strategist who truly believes uh, that the only security for the United States is to be the number one, the hegemon, uh, the one with the full spectrum primacy, then uh, you don't view your interest in uh, absolute terms of rising living standards and so forth, you view your interest as the difference between your status and the other status. So even if you hurt both sides, if you hurt the other side even more, that seems to be beneficial in the mindset of neoconservatives. And it's been explained to me by a lot of international relations strategists. Uh, yeah, we think differently from economists. Uh, economists uh, believe in mutual gain. They believe uh, in an open world, whereas strategists believe in power relations. So what counts is dominance. I've never believed that idea. You know, one of our great realists in the United States and a very smart and a very nice man is uh, John Mearsheimer at University of Chicago. And his famous book is called The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. And I put the emphasis on tragedy. He says, yes, there's a struggle for power. It's inevitable. Everyone's fighting to be hegemon. But his conclusion is it's a tragedy. My conclusion is, could we stop the damn tragedy before it occurs? You know, why do we need to go to world war over this stupidity? And when I look at what the neocons think and say, I find it completely bewildering. When I read Robert Kagan's book, The Jungle Grows Back, I'm horrified. His true belief, his true belief is that unless the United States runs the world, the world won't function. Well, 
<laughs> Almost no one else believes this, by the way, and for real reason. Why should 4% of the world population presume to run the rest of the world? It makes absolutely no sense. And when you think about it, the whole viewpoint is intrinsically dangerous because if one place with 4% of the world population says we must lead, what does the other 96% of the world say? And we, we know what they say. No, we don't want you to lead. If you would just behave and cooperate, maybe we could all get along together. That's, that's my view. I, I was wondering. Agree. I mean, I, 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 sorry. So just, just to say very quickly, I mean, the, the neocon vision isn't a realistic one. It's a fantastic one. It, 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 it's it, the more realistic vision by far is to pursue sensible trade and economic relations with other countries. That's a way forward to a much more stable and realistic system. The other one is a is a sort of nightmare fantastic system it is it's also yeah it's also a, you know it's a terrible anachronism it's a throwback to the 1950s uh, it's and the the problem is of course with the dissolution of the soviet union which that that's a whole big issue it was not Ronald Reagan defeating the Soviet Union, it, it, it was a, a, an evolutionary change because certain things weren't working. So there was an attempt at reform and creating uh, a, a, a more common global space, which then was taken by the neoconservatives going all the way back 30 years, of course, to Cheney especially, to Rumsfeld, to Wolfowitz, but then on the Democratic Party side to Biden, uh, to uh, Newland, uh, to Kagan and to others as, okay, now we really are in the unipolar world. It was a fantasy then, but it, after 30 years of China's rapid development, after the stability and the recovery of Russia after the financial crises of the 80s and the 90s, it's, it, it is absolutely a bizarre illusion. It's not an accident that it's being guided by an octogenarian U.S. president. This is a throwback to the past. It is not a reflection of current realities. If you actually look at the world as it is, if you look at data, as I do morning till night, you find interesting factoids like the fact that the BRICS countries now, uh, that is uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, are larger in economic output measured at international prices than the G7 countries. So how can we have a, a world run by the U.S. or even by the G7 when the BRICS are larger than the G7, it, it makes no sense. But you actually see, I see it in my former colleagues at the Harvard University Kennedy School where I taught for a long time. I see it all over East Coast America. Still, the this idea that the U.S. is the unipolar power, uh, we can have our way, and they're slowly facing some grim <laughs> findings which are so obvious but come as great revelations 
uh, in uh, the East Coast of the United States that the world isn't going along with it. I mean, they're puzzling even after a year of this. Why isn't everyone on our side uh, in uh, this uh, proxy war in Ukraine? Why hasn't everyone fallen into line? They don't get it because they don't get out enough, frankly. <laughs> they, they live in, uh, in, in a Washington-centric world, not in the world as it is today. I remember a key criticism of unipolarity in the early 90s was that it would be temporary because the U.S. would exhaust its resources and it would incentivize adversaries to come together. And I'm thinking now that you have this financial economic crisis and you have uh, all the key adversaries, you know, through BRICS, uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, even friends and uh, neutral countries of the U.S. are you know, diversifying a bit away from the U.S. Is, as, as these predictions seem to all come true, isn't there... Uh, the, you mentioned the strategists and the well, the uh, the neocons wouldn't even they start to think after a while that this uh, this is uh, not a good proposition. We're we're going to lose if pursue hegemony. Should we maybe shift to a uh, multipolar multipolar system where we may be the first among equals, or is it because it, it doesn't it doesn't seem sustainable uh, uh, continuing on this path? Uh, is there no? Do you see any movements at all in the? Because you mentioned the. Some people are looking at the numbers now and it doesn't seem to work out. Yeah, I think it's important to say that the failure of unipolarity is intrinsic in the idea, not uh, in exhaustion per se, but simply in the fact that the rest of the world doesn't just sit there. The rest of the world adopts new technologies, develops. China is uh, one of the most productive innovative, dynamic places in the world. It's got a population more than four times the United States. It's had the uh, greatest economic success over the last 40 years through a massive investment in modernization and in infrastructure and in quality education in very hard work, by the way. And it has built a, a, a very large, successful and dynamic economy. And there's no way that China would remain a smaller economy than the United States, given that it has four times more the population, except if it somehow got stuck at less than one fourth of the per capita income of the United States. But why should it get stuck? It's doing the right things. It's investing in its people. It's investing in education. It's investing in modern infrastructure. So it's not getting stuck. Now the U.S. has the lame brain idea, well, we'll make it stuck. You know, we'll dust off the playbook of 1950 and we'll, quote, contain China. That's really an amazingly bizarre idea. First of all, how is 330 million people going to contain 1.4 billion people where the 1.4 billion population is the main trading partner for most of the rest of the world? How's that supposed to work? Well, the U.S. says we're going to cut them off from advanced semiconductors. You know, China's very clever. They will make these semiconductors very soon. Uh, this is the whole history of attempts to cut off the other side from uh, one thing or another. And it's just at this stage, illusion. Basically, 4% of the world population cannot be the hegemon for the world. That's the bottom line. By the way, nor can 18% of the world population. China is not going to be 
the new hegemon. We're not going to have a hegemon. We're going to have a multipolar world unless we blow it up. Uh, so uh, we're, we're moving to multipolarity because we're now in a world of independent sovereign nations with very clever people all over the world with the flow of knowledge and technology and science, which enables all parts of the world to make progress. And so the idea of unipolarity or full spectrum dominance or whatever one wants to call it, which, by the way, the U.S. learned from its mentor, Britain, and we see where that is uh, has gone. Uh, it's just an anachronism. It doesn't work. And uh, it, it, it therefore should be uh, recognized for what it is, a, a strange idea that came from, yes, 200 years of relative Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, hegemony, but it's over. Uh, and it's fine that it's over. It's over for the good reason that prosperity is spreading around the world. I completely agree. I mean, one would have thought that, you know, economic growth, prosperity in China is something to be celebrated. Of not course. Something to be, not something to be feared. Trying to restrict Chinese economic growth, trying to freeze China's per capita GDP at a quarter of that of the United States is immoral. <laughs> it, it's a, it, what does China have to do? To, you know, to to be allowed to increase its GDP to U.S. levels, and as you absolutely rightly say, it's inachievable. One of the things I mean, I read a lot of these neocon pieces, and I think that one of the things that really troubles me is economics never features in it, and yet economics in their thinking, and yet economics ought to be at the base of everything in the modern world. I mean, power relations depends on economics. And, you know, economics points you today away from 19th century power relations. It should not be difficult. Sorry. Well, you know, it, 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 it is true if you think about uh, our aims as being well-being, uh, material uh, uh, security, and so forth, then it's pretty obvious that the question of who's number one is not the most interesting question in the world. It's actually a pretty bizarre question. Uh, again, if you are, I suppose, uh, this kind of uh, geopolitical strategist, which I'm not, I'm an economist uh, hoping for well-being around the world, then maybe you ask different questions. But I must say the track record of asking those different questions is exactly what John Mearsheimer says. It's tragic. So we should learn to ask different questions. The main question should not be who's number one, but the main question should be how can we get along? This is actually so evident. And, you know, you've discussed it. I've discussed it many times. I find it unbelievable and tragic that Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin have not spoken in the past year. Unbelievable. The world has consequences of this. Are we in a playground or are we serious people? adults trying to solve problems. You know, what is it that prevents the two from getting on the phone? I think Biden 
should be the one to do it because President Putin put forward already in December 2021 reasonable ways to avoid conflict, absolutely sensible ways, stop the NATO enlargement, then we can actually uh, have a mutual uh, respect and security for everybody. But no, didn't want to talk about it. And so it is a completely different mindset. Everything is, uh, if it's all about the power relations, you end up with tragedy. You end up with conflict in which nobody wins. And with China, it's even more bizarre. And I've watched it as a, as a creation of uh, this ideology. Starting in 2015, there was a conscious change. Well, China's rise is no longer in America's interest. Even grown-ups wrote that. Are you kidding? It's not in your interest that China rise anymore. Now we're going to have a different foreign policy to stop China's rise. But they actually believe that and behave that way. And it's, to my mind, worse than a, a schoolyard playground, this kind of behavior, except it's in a world of nuclear weapons. So it's no joke at all. It's absolutely tragic. For sex, uh well, we run out of time, so I just want to thank you again for uh, yeah for taking the time to come, and uh, yeah, we hope to see you again. Absolutely, <laughs> pleasure to be with both of you. Thank, <clears throat> thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks.